in preparation for this message, it was something that the framework was laid out in the Adventist Review, but the sermon wasn't. And as you can see, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, which was the scripture read this morning. But before we go into the message, I always ask for the Lord to guide and lead so that what is said can be to his honor and glory. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, loving Lord, we just ask right now. As you have in the past, we pray that you'll send your Holy Spirit. Your children are waiting. They are lifting their cups towards heaven. Fill each cup, Lord, to the measure that you know we are in need of. And when that cup is filled, may it empower us, enlighten us, and guide us. And I pray also that I could be the conduit through which your name is glorified this morning. And as the theme is your word, which is a constant lamp and a never dying light, help us to remember how to use this glorious light to guide us from where we are to eternity. And so I now give you my heart's hands and mind. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When we think about what the Lord wants to do in our lives, I want to go ahead once again and share that scripture with you about the eternal flame. What is the eternal flame? And what does God want us to do with it? Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I always like interesting stories to become the lead into the message. And I always look for stories that have some connection to the topic at hand. Stories should never be for the purpose of entertainment or the purpose for a smile, but its, its eternal purpose should be to lay the foundation for the message. And I could imagine that some of you may have been alive when President Kennedy was alive. I would say I was alive, but I was extremely young, for the record. But I, I cannot forget November 22nd, 1963. I was a little boy. Mama, the lady who raised me, was vacuuming the living room. It was back in the day when, I don't know how your house was, but when we got new furniture, the furniture, we never sat on the furniture because it was covered with plastic. Anybody remember that? It was the thing. When you get new furniture, we could see it. And the way that you knew that somebody was in the living room is you heard the plastic crackling. <laughs> I never forgot that. We had a nice pink couch and a blue couch and a love seat and nice red carpet. And Mama was vacuuming the carpet. And I was a little boy, and I heard her turn off the vacuum, and I heard her weeping, and I wondered what was wrong. And our oval-shaped black-and-white television became the focal point of her stare when I heard her say, Kennedy is dead. Kennedy 
is dead. My little ears didn't understand it, but I could never miss that. November 22nd, 1963, the 35th president of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was assassinated at 12.30 p.m. Central Time in Dealey Square, right there in Dallas, Texas. As he drove through town in his presidential motorcade with his wife and other dignitaries, a tragic day that shook the nation. But out of that story, two days later, his wife, his surviving wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, made a request that on November 24th, 1963, an eternal flame be inserted in the spot where her husband's final resting place was going to be. And I always wondered about that eternal flame, and I decided, well, how did the idea of the eternal flame come about? And I did my homework. And I discovered that the site of his burial place was a place that John F. Kennedy and his friend, an architect, John Carl Warnacki, they visited that site earlier that year in March of 1963. And the president at the time said he admired it because, quote, it was a peaceful atmosphere and a very quiet location. And he alluded, that would be an amazing place if I were ever buried. Never knowing that between March and November, he only had that amount of time. But the question that came to my mind is what makes the flame eternal? The flame, it was said, it was built to withstand rain and wind. And the site that became his final resting place, according to the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum, they said, the reason why it's called eternal is because, quote, it is a constantly flashing electric spark near the tip of the nozzle. So whenever it rains or whenever the wind blows, they said, if the flame goes out, it almost starts back instantly. So you never see the time between it going out and being reignited because it doesn't flash when the flame goes out. So that if the flame ever went out, it'll start back instantly. They called it, they said, because of this, if the flame is extinguished, it reignites almost instantly. And I thought to myself, Terry, that's a story that I could use for the eternal flame. That's a story that can fit into the message about God's eternal flame. Because friends, God's word is an eternal flame. What do you say? It is built to withstand the extinguishing winds and rains of its adversaries. God's word is connected to the constantly flashing divine spark of his Holy Spirit. And every attempt to extinguish the flame only results, Ian, in an instant reignition. Can you say amen? Because throughout the ages, men have made many attempts to stamp out God's flame, to blow it out, to pour water on it, to extinguish it. And although the flame had grown dim during the dark ages, the constant flashing divine spark of the Holy Spirit has kept the flame of God's word flashing throughout the ages. To God be the glory. What do you say? That's why I take my Bible seriously. I don't know about your attitude towards your Bible, but when I open my Bible, I recognize immediately that I'm not on common ground. 
I'm, I'm in a book that God has saw fit to preserve, to, to maintain. Every attempt to get rid of it has resulted in failure. Every adverse institution that sought to replace it has failed. And God's word is still the number one selling book of all time. Atheists deny it. Agnostics doubt it. And sinners disagree with it, but it still burns. Some say it's a fable, a fiction, and a fabrication, but I say today it still burns. God's word is endless, everlasting, and eternal, and God's word will never be extinguished. What do you say? Isaiah the prophet says it this way in Isaiah 40, verse 8. He said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands for how long? Stands forever. It ought to, it ought to change the way the attitude we have towards studying God's Word. It ought to ignite the fact in our lives that when we open the Bible, we are walking through divine pathways. We are face-to-face -face with divinity. God, as it were, is speaking to our hearts. Word of God, speak. When we open God's Word, never open God's Word in an attitude of levity. Never open God's word thinking that you're going to find the treasures therein without asking the Holy Spirit to reveal those treasures to you. If the Holy Spirit is the one, let me repeat that, because the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired men to write it, only he can inspire us to understand it. The word of God is a book that never grows dim, a power that never fades, a light that never needs new batteries because the Spirit of God is never out of date. He's always connected. Come on, say amen, somebody. God's Word is powerful. It is endless, everlasting, and eternal. The Bible, this book is unchanging, undeniable, and unequivocal. I read books. I have a lot of books in my house. I like to read books. But every now and then when I get tired of reading books, even religious books, there's something about opening God's word that shifts. You go from the, the mind of an individual. And I would even go so far as saying, even the writings of Ellen White cannot parlay with the Bible. Because in everything that's written, there's this element of human frailty. But when you open the Bible, even though God used frail men like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to communicate their experiences. The words were not inspired. The thoughts and the experiences are inspired. That's why Matthew differs a little from Mark and differ a little, differs a little from Luke and John. But the thought is constant. Somebody once said to me, well, Mark says that Jesus rose while it was yet dark. And John says at the breaking of the day. And Matthew says during the night, well, how, which one is, which one is correct? I said, they all are because he rose. <laughs> they said, well, how do they differ? I said, well, John was there. Peter and John were there. Mark and Matthew heard about it when they came back. They are witnesses of the fact that he rose. So these little nuances that differ does not remove the fact that we serve a risen Savior. And the word of God can be trusted. It was the proclamation of the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, this man now converted, 
His name is Peter, this impetuous man who could not get his life synchronized until after his denial, he ran to the tomb and found in the person of Christ forgiveness for his transgression. And that was amazing to me because God, God had scheduled Peter to preach on the day of Pentecost. But he had to allow Peter to go through his garbage to be ready to preach on the day of Pentecost. So Peter's fall was not prevented by Jesus. He had to fall so that he can rise higher than he was before his fall. So the Lord said to Peter, the devil desires to sift you as wheat, but I prayed that your faith will not fail. And the King James Version says, and when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. I tell you, nothing clears your eyes better than when you fall so far that the only way is up. And when resurrection morning, when they heard about the fact that they wanted to test the theory whether or not Jesus was going to rise. And when Sunday morning came, they remembered, they remembered as the dawn was coming, they remembered and Peter and John ran to the tomb and found the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. And what an ignition grabbed his heart. And then Jesus decided, well, on the other side of this, I'm going to have a personal breakfast with Peter. We're going to have some fish together. And as they were having breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? He said, I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know, I love you, Lord. Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. Then feed my sheep. And, and a lot of times we get caught off of this ideology that the Lord asked him so many times, but Peter denied the Lord three times. And the Lord used these three questions to confirm in Peter's heart whether or not he really was converted, whether or not he really loved him. The first time, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally, Peter? Peter said, I love you. I phileo you. I love you like a brother. He said again, do you agape me, Peter? Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Peter said, Lord, you know, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. And then the third time the Lord said, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? Lord, you know, I love you like a brother. Then feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost came, this proclamation was from a man whose life was converted. So when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, it was not a normal sermon. Look what the Bible says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. It was not a normal sermon. The Bible says in Acts 4:31, and when they had prayed, when they did what? Always got to pray for God to use you after that prayer. The place where they were assembled together was what? Shaken. I always wondered what that was like. What was the measurement on the Richter scale? It was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with what? Boldness. You can never speak God's word with boldness without the Holy Spirit in your life. You can be intellectual, but you'll always fail. You'll fall short. Am I right, Dakota? You will fall short if you try to preach God's word without the Holy Spirit being the active ignition behind you. It may sound good, but it will never result in a transformed life because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. When you study this text, you find that 
12 times in the book of Acts, the success of the early church is described, and each time it is linked to the preaching of the word, the everlasting flame, the eternal flame. Effective discipleship begins in a relationship with the living word. I'm going to say that again. I love music. I appreciate music. Music may move your heart to be open to the word of God, but your walk with Christ can only be sustained by a relationship to the living word and the written word. When Jesus was in the tomb, when Jesus was in the garden of temptation, he never sang a song to the devil. He said, it is written. What did he say? It is written. So you find we cannot be connected to the living word and be disconnected from the written word. Let me say that again. We cannot claim a connection with the living word unless we are connected to the written word. It's so clear. It's abundantly clear. The Bible makes it very clear in Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. When it talks about the success of the church, it says, but the word of God grew and did what? Multiplied. As God's word is multiplied, so also is the life of the individual that reads it. You'll find that the blessings in your life will multiply. Even the trials in your life will multiply. Why will that happen? Because the devil doesn't want you to read the word of God. When the blessings of God begin to multiply, it makes the devil concerned, so he tries to increase your trials and they'll multiply. What record can I use as evidence? Look at the life of the apostles. The more they proclaimed, the more they had trials, but they would rather suffer for the glory of God than prevent themselves from proclaiming the word of God. And I would say, friends, if you think about the early church, if the word of God was needed for the inauguration of the church, how much more is the word of God needed as we prepare for the coronation of the church? If the word of God was needed to get this started, it is needed even more to get it finished. If we needed it at the beginning of the race, we got to keep our eyes focused on the word as we're nearing the end of the race. Why is that? Look at John chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible makes it clear, the alpha and the omega. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was the what? Was the word. David the psalmist says, by the word of the Lord was the heavens made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth, he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. You'll discover when you read God's word, you'll discover when you study God's word, that when God's word speaks, things happen. That's why the wise man said, death and life are in the power of of the tongue. So the word of God matters and the word of man matters. But when the word of man meets the word of God, the word of God supersedes the word of man. When the word of God enters into the mind of the person imbibing it, when you allow the word of God like good seasoning to just sit on that food overnight, you can taste the difference the next day. My wife yesterday, she's a great vegetarian cook. 
but she's also a great Jamaican vegetarian cook. So she made some, I don't know what you call it, but it was good. And it, and it had, it was like veggie meat sliced like the veggie chicken. And she put some Jamaican curry and scotch bonnet pepper, which you, many of you don't know what that is, but Jasmine does <laughs> and Ricky does and, and coconut and, um, and just let it sit there. And then she made potato salad and added some vegetarian spices in it and rice and peas. And she said, how do you like it? Mm. And I finished my first plate and then my second plate. <laughs> and she said, I like this new John. He really enjoys eating. I said, honey, I like this new Angela. She's got some new spices in the meals. And I want to tell you, God's, and I said, well, how did, how does it, how did you do that? She said, I let it, I let the seasoning sit and let it sink in, let it soak in. You know, a meal is good when everything you touch just continues to taste good. And you, I said, honey, I need more rice. I need more potato salad. She said, you can't eat that. When the word of God is good like that, you want more. Come on, say amen somebody. Because there are times we study the Bible and it gets so good, we look at each other and we almost think, the, uh, let's read the next chapter. And then we get through the next chapter and we say, oh, we got to find out what happened. Let's read the next chapter. That's how God's word is. It's a flame. When that flame gets started in you, you can't be satisfied with anything else. And when you turn off the world and pick up God's word, you recognize, wait a minute, you want drama? God's word has drama. It's got some salacious details that'll make you blush. Am I telling the truth? Yeah. It was said of the, among the Jewish young men that they were not allowed to read the book, the Song of Solomon, until they were 13 years old. And I recommend don't read it unless you're married. Because it shows how God, through the allegorical language of the husband and wife, how he loves his church. And love is beautiful because God gave it to us. Say, say amen, somebody. But when love is shared between a husband and a wife, there's something there that you cannot find otherwise. And such is the case when it comes to reading God's word. When there's a relationship between the reader and the word of God, it is, the, it is as though God is right there saying to you, can I talk to you? Can I talk? Can we talk? God says, let me tell you what I meant by this. And I'll be honest with you. There are times I've read things that I've read for many, many, many years. And all of a sudden it clicks. Because on that day, I sat back and say, word of God, speak. How beautiful God's word is. That's why, friends, in these last days, if the Lord brought the world into existence by his word, how much more do we need the word of God as we near the end? Look at Revelation 19 and verse 13. The Bible says when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back, this is a, a description of who he is when he comes back. The Bible says he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the what? The word of God. He was the word of God in the beginning. He is the word of God today, and he will be the word of God when he comes back again. What do you say? 
So if, if we have a relationship with not only the living word, but the written word, he will keep us from the beginning to the end. When we read the word of God, we meet the alpha and he'll hold us together till the omega. But that's got to be a day by day. See, it's all about Christian lifestyle. The Bible is not the book you drag with you to church on Sabbath morning, but it's the book that has been, dis that has been connected to your arm all week long. It's the book that you've been reading through. Your breakfast is here and the Bible is there. When you wake up in the morning, the Bible is within arm's reach. Come on, somebody. It's right where you, you can find your flashlight and your Bible at the same time. At least in my house, it's that way. I got three Bibles to my right. I got my flashlight. Everything I need right there to my right. We can find it. You got to get your markers, your highlighters. We, we take our Bible study seriously. We got highlighters and markers. My colors mean something completely differently than hers. But it's her Bible. But when you get into studying God's Word and it becomes the necessary art in your life, you'll start noticing you're going to change. There is no way that you can have a one-to-one -one conversation with God and not change. It's not possible. It's not possible. Can you imagine your phone rings and it says, hello, who is it? It's Jesus. <coughs> who is it? It's Jesus. I miss my time with you. These moments together. Is it possible that you could fit me into your schedule early tomorrow morning? Would you hang up the phone and say no? I doubt it. But so often we don't hear the Holy Spirit saying to us, he's missing his time with you. And when we take time to be holy, something happens. What happens? John 17, 17 tells us what happens. What happens? Sanctify them. Say it together with me. What? Sanctify them by, by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is not just sanctified, but it sanctifies. What does that mean? God's word is holy. And when you read it, you begin to understand what it means to be holy. God's word is not just a holy book, but it transforms lives and turns lives into holy lives. And you'll never know whether or not your life is holy unless you have something unerring to measure it against. And it should be measured against God's word. If you think that your life is out of line, take it to God's body shop. And he'll calibrate your tires. And when you leave, you'll be able to go down the road in the old vernacular. My dad used to say, he taught me how to straighten my bike tires. And he said, I said, what are you doing? He'd sit there with this little tool. He's from the old school. He'd sit there with this little tool. And uh, he'll take the bike tire off. And he'd have a file in his hand and a small tool. And I'd say, what are you doing? He says, I'm getting your bike ready for the warm weather. And I'd sit there and I'd say, what are you doing? He said, look at this. And he'd spin the, he'd spin the wheel and I'd see the wheel go like this. He'd say, it's not true yet. He called it truing the wheel. I said, really? He said, now what you do is if it's out of whack this way, you go to the opposite side and tighten that to pull it this way. And if it's out of, you go to the opposite, pull it. And when he was done, he'd spin that and you couldn't see the wheel. It just stayed as constant as ever. And I said, I never heard about that. It's truing the wheel. When your life is out of whack, God will true you. 
if you connect to the one that can calibrate your life. Only God's word can do that. That is why, that is why the devil is as upset as he is. Who is he upset with? Here it is, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Why is he upset? Look at this. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, we've read that passage a thousand times, at least. Why is he upset? Let me make the point very clear. How can you claim to have a relationship with God, but see his commandments as unnecessary? It's not possible. I read that text to somebody once, if you love me, keep my commandments. And you know what I got? They said, well, that's your interpretation. I said, let's break it down. If, what does if mean? Conditional, thank you. If you, who is you? You. Is that clear? You. Love. What is love? That opening of the heart to the other. Your opening of your heart to God. If you love, who's the me? Me. That's Jesus. Let's get that. If you love. We got that part? What does keep mean? That means embrace. That means conform to. My Who's the my again? Once again, Jesus. So let's make it seriously clear. The only word you have a problem with is commandments. So don't, don't impose your likes and dislikes on God. And it, what bothers me is when I hear that, it's almost like Christians today are almost saying to God, you got a serious problem with asking me to keep your commandments. That's the spirit of the devil. There's no way you can be connected to God and say that his commandments are unnecessary. And there's no two ways to interpret that. As a matter of fact, the devil knows exactly how to interpret that because he's concerned about those who hold to the commandments of God. They are clearly a part of God's word. That's why when you read God's word, you'll find that our uniform is the whole armor of God but our weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the living Word of God. I'll say that again. Our uniform, the whole armor of God. Our weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is, in fact, the Word of God. Why do we need that? Why is God's Word a continued lamp? Here's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. This is the beauty of that weapon. This is the why the devil doesn't like this weapon. This is why the devil hates those who read God's word, and he hates God's word with a vehement hate. Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is what, friends? Living. And what else? Powerful. And what else? Sharper than any two-edged sword. Is there something that can resist its piercing? No. Piercing even to the division of what? Soul and spirit, that is the thought man and the living man, and of joints and marrow, and watch this, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Wow. Let's break that down. I would recommend to you that one of the reasons why people don't like to read God's word, it exposes who they are. It doesn't just say, I'm going to reveal what you're doing. It says, I'm going to reveal what you're thinking. 
Anybody ever said to you, what do you think about that? And they had to wait for your response? Well, the Word of God says, why are you thinking that? <laughs> why are you thinking that? Remember, Jesus said, why do you reason such in your heart? The living Word, Jesus said to the Pharisees, why are you reasoning that way? The living Word, the Bible says, why are you thinking that? And I can imagine that people that don't read the Word of God, they don't want to be examined by it. Because the Word of God examines you. It goes way down deep to the, to the thoughts and intents of the heart. Why is that significant? If the antediluvians held to the Word of God, their thoughts and intents would not have been evil continually. It is, ama is it amazing? Is it amazing that the writer of Hebrews uses the very phrases that are parlayed in the book of Genesis? The thoughts and intents of their hearts were only evil continually. But the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If they had, if they had held to God's Word, they would not have come to the place where God was upset that He had even made them. Well, here's the point. I don't want God to be upset that He made me. I want to give God something to be... I'm just a little grain of sand on a tiny little planet somewhere in God's creation. But I want to wake up tomorrow morning and know that God is pleased with me. Anybody else? And it can only happen if the Word of God is clear. Why do we need God's Word? You know why, friends? We are not in a turf war, a drug war, or a political war. We are not in a competition for the new world order. We are in a battle for the human heart, a struggle for the human mind. We are in a combat against darkness. We are called to be soldiers of light. We are called to preach to the spiritually dead, marching to Christless graves. God has called us to be physicians to those affected by the terminal illness of sin. And the only reliable weapon in the war is the efficacious word of God, that sharp two-edged sword. But sometimes we forget, here we are sequestered down in southern Illinois, out in the cornfields, nobody bumping by with rap music. Amen, somebody. Nobody cussing each other out across the street, breaking glass and stealing cars. We actually boast about how peaceful it is out here. But the question is, is that the kind of peace that's happening in your home? Do you have peace in your heart? Because you can have a peaceful community, but a heart that is turbulent. Why? Because God's word is not there. We can boast about our community that's so quiet. You know, what do we hear? Well, every now and then we hear a periodic gunshot. Well, we know that's not one person shooting the other. I'll leave the rest for your own interpretation. But we hear the cows mooing as we drive down the side street. We hear the squirrels contending over black oil seeds, fighting the cardinals and the blue jays. We see the birds flying every morning back and forth to find their food. And we say, what a peaceful setting, how glorious it is. But the Word of God does not want to just give you peace around you. When we study God's Word, He gives us peace, peace within us. It's possible to be in a setting that's so quiet, but your life is so turbulent. It's possible to be in a place where there's peace all around you, but there's no peace within you, I recommend to you today, if you want to find peace within, allow the Word of God to speak. Not just speak to you, but speak through you.
That's what God's word wants to do. I read an article by the New York Times. It was, it was an April 25th, 2018 article. And the subheading was, most Americans believe in a higher power, but not always in the God of the Bible. And I, I thought the article was pretty interesting, so I looked further into the article to find out what the specifics were. It says, out of 4,729 people that were polled, the question that was put to every one of them was, do you believe in God or not? Here was the respondents. 80% said yes. But out of that 80%, 56% believe in God as described in the Bible. That was an amen right there. But 24% believe in some other higher power or spiritual force. So the yes does not necessarily mean they believe in God. It simply means that there are those who believe in a higher power or another spiritual force. But here's the part that was most depressing. The 19% said no. 9% of those said they believe in some higher power or spiritual force. They, they, but they do believe in some higher power or spiritual force. But 10% said they do not believe in any higher power or spiritual force. So we have people today, we have atheists, we have agnostics, we have people that just don't believe in God's word at all. So why is it necessary for us to believe in God's word? There is a need in society today for people to see God's word active in the lives of those that claim to be connected to God. And why now? Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. Why now? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Turn there with me and look at what the Bible says. Why now? He says, for the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine. And by the way, this is to the Christian, not to the world. But according to their own desire, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Tell them what they want to hear. That's why we have 30,000 denominations. And they will turn their ears away from the what? Truth. And be turned aside to what? Fables. I don't know. I don't know. Is it just me? But how... Can people believe some of the stuff that is being taught today in Christianity? I've made many attempts sometimes to share with other Christians. And the thing that troubled me the most is rather than them saying, well, this is what the Bible says. They say, well, that's not what my pastor says. Remember, your pastor don't have any heaven to put you in. And don't have any hell to keep you out of. You better know for yourself. Amen. Amen. If you miss your plane, don't say that that guy sent you to the wrong gate. You better know your gate yourself. My wife and I know what that's like. We were on our way to North Dakota to speak at the University of North Dakota. And we sat at the gate so proud. And we were just excited to be there early. Everybody else was late. We said, where's everybody? <laughs> Only to realize, we, as I was sitting there eating my sandwich and looked up on the board, said, departed. I said, what's our ticket number? What's our flight number? She read the flight number. She said, our plane just left. We're at the wrong gate. Now, what am I saying? You could be wrong, sincerely wrong, and miss the flight. 
as amazing as the details are, some people say the details don't matter. When it comes to your salvation, do details matter? It does matter. So don't, don't, don't say the details don't matter because many people are believing things that if they would just pay attention to the details in God's word, it's a detailed book, they'll discover that what they were taught or what they formerly believed is not so because unlike the saying that the world embraces, you know, the world says the devil is in the details. When it comes to God's word, that's not the case. Come on, somebody. Christ is in the details. The details do matter. That's why I say if the Bible doesn't confirm it, do not preach it. Why? Satan's first attack and his last attack are going to be identical. Satan rejected the truth and God's authority in heaven. He led Eve to doubt God's word in the Garden of Eden. And as we near the end, he is seeking to accomplish the very same thing among millions. But I put a question to you. What should our attitude be towards God's word? Let's go to 1 Samuel. Let's see this. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I know I'm going to bring it up on the screen, but get used to your Bible. What should our attitude be toward God's word? This is an amazing story. I'll tell the story before I bring the scripture up. But David, this young shepherd boy, had heard about this, this cat called Goliath. Big mouth, nine foot tall. If you're nine feet, if you're nine feet why do you need uh, armor, a coat made of male metal to fight against a little guy? I mean, if you're nine feet, that should be all you need. Help me out. Nine feet, he's got, a, he's got a spear, and the tip of the spear is 20 pounds. He's got on a helmet. You would think he's going to fight somebody his size. <laughs> you know why they sent Goliath against David? I studied this and I came to discover how powerful our God is because they heard about the God of the Israelites. They knew that we need somebody stronger than we are to fight against their God. But I want to say today, even a nine foot adversary is not big enough to fight against God. So Saul said, well, we got to get you ready for this battle, David. So Saul said, why don't you use my armor? Why don't you use my sword? Why don't you use my helmet? Why don't you use my shield? And look at what happened. 1 Samuel 17, verse 38 and 39. It's a very interesting story. So here you have this little guy. He's a shepherd boy. And the Bible says, so, so Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put a bronze helmet on his head. <laughs> he also clothed him with a coat of mail just like his adversary. Fastened, David fastened his sword, that is Saul's sword, to his armor, Saul's armor, and he did what? He tried to walk. What was the problem? For he had not what? He had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I love this. I cannot walk with these. For I have not, what, tested them. So what did David do? David took them off. Wow, that's a whole sermon right there. I could preach a sermon called, take it off. I had one called, throw it out. I'll do one called, take it off. What happens? 
You can never win your battles by putting on somebody else's armor. You can't rely on somebody else's Bible study in your war because it hasn't been tested. God is going to test you in your own skin. If you have not secured the faith of God and endured the test in your own trial, you'll never be able to put on Tim's armor when your battle comes. That's why you hear me. I sometimes sound like a broken record or a man with dementia, not minimizing the terrible effects of that. But you might say, there go pastor again, once again, talking about Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study. Until the day I die, I'm going to breathe that out. We need to know how to use our weapons. If it has not been tested and proven by the Bible, what should we do? No, take it off. <laughs> take it off. What did David do? He what? He took it off. If the word of God does not say it, take it off. Matter of fact, don't even put it on. That's why the, that's why the apostle says it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21. Look at the, He makes it very direct, almost a parlay a parallel to what happened to David. He said, test all things. How many things? All things. When you're reading God's word, don't just settle on one scripture. Hey, hold fast what is good. Why don't you just settle on one scripture? Because sometimes you could read a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you could read one verse. I would rather be absent from the body and be present with the Lord and because you didn't read the whole context, you think the Bible is talking about death. But many people don't realize that in that entire passage, with that phrase, it doesn't say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It said, I would rather be. How many of you, let me ask you today, with all the trials you face, how many of you would rather be absent from this world and present with Jesus? But make sure that you don't mess up what Paul said. He said, you will put on immortality when Jesus comes. You're not going before Jesus gets here. And Jesus even said it himself. That's why don't take a little piece of the scripture and apply it to the whole thing. Because Jesus says, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. What's the point? We're not going anywhere until Jesus comes back. Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. Why is that necessary? Hosea 4 verse 6, just a short portion says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Why? Because you have rejected knowledge. Why is it dangerous to reject knowledge today? Because the Bible says in Daniel 12, knowledge will increase. Let me make a very sobering point. We are not just responsible for what we should have read, we are responsible for what we could have read. We are not responsible just for the things that we have exposed our eyes to. We are responsible for the things that we could have. And how do I know that? What does Jesus say in Matthew 4, 4? Man shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by most of the words, by some of the words, by the majority of the words, but by what? Every word that, every word that proceeds from God's mouth. So watch this. We're all guilty of it. 
You can say amen before I tell you what you're guilty of, because you're guilty of it. We are all guilty of signing the bottom line without re reading the fine print. Come on. <laughs> right. Right. When we download software, do you agree with the conditions? We don't even know what the conditions are. The conditions may be when you download the software, your house belongs to us. We agree. <laughs> Am I right? Who reads the conditions? You get your car. It's like 75 pages long. Just sign right there. When you sign this car, if you try to get rid of it, we will come and take your wife from you. <laughs> What's the condition? We don't read the small print. But let me tell you something. Don't do that with God's word. Read the fine print. Because, because you will be judged by the word of God. So it ain't going to be, I didn't see it. Because how many Bibles do you have in your house? Five? <laughs> and you had the remote more than you had the Bible. How many hours? That's why I like what Apple did. Apple has this new thing on their devices. Android has it now where they can gauge how much time you spend on certain apps. You ought to examine how much time you spend on certain apps and slap yourself. Didn't the Bible say deny yourself? Stop that. Reaching for that app. Stop that. Reach for the word and God would not slap your hand. Amen. We ought to look at our lives, begin to gauge how we take God's word, this lamp and this light, how we handle it, because one day the light is not going to be there. My people are destroyed. When we preach the word of God, it will affect a change, and the change will be evident. The Lord said it clearly. You cannot read my word and not realize there's going to be a powerful change in your life. How do I know that? Look at Isaiah 55 and verse 11. He says, so shall my word be that goeth forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me, what? Void. But it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. I, there, there are times when, when I have said to God in my, in my prayers, and sometimes in my destitute moments, in my desperation, I would say through tears, God, you said. And you know what the Bible says? He honors his word above his name. Now, remember, you know how powerful it is? He says, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And then we read a scripture that says, he honors his word above his name. That's powerful. You could say, God, you said, and he said, you're right. And if you don't think that's effective, that's what Moses did. When God said, I'm going to wipe out the Israelites, I'm going to take their name out of the book of life. Moses says, no, take my name out. You are long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And the Bible says God relented. Not that he changed his mind, but he recognized, yes, his heart is for his people. And yes, I must preserve my people as a testament to the world. When God's word enters into your life, you cannot put gasoline in your car and not expect your car to start. You cannot light a candle and not expect it to burn. God is saying, if you put my word in your life, 
you're going to see the changes because my word never returns to me void. God's word does not have an expiration date. Not like bread. Use it before this date. God's word is a bread that never spoils. It's fresh every day. But I want to say something that's going to maybe shake some of you. Worship without God's word, worship without truth is deception. Worship that is based on man's word can never replace worship and the conditions of worship that is based on God's word. But so much of what's in, in Christianity today is worship. And I ask myself, does God believe the same? Does God accept that? We call it worship, and we, does God accept that? Well, here's the kind of worship God accepts. John 4, verse 23 and 24. Here's the kind of worship that he says he accepts. Now, it's from the book of John, but I didn't write it. The Bible says, but the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshiper will worship the Father in what? Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such, he's looking for such to worship him. God is spirit. God is what? God is spirit. And those who worship him should worship in spirit and truth. Oh, did I miss something? Oh, I didn't say should. What did it say? Must. Now, that's Jesus speaking. We cannot modify the conditions of worship. If your worship does not include the spirit, what does that mean? Spirit. It doesn't mean jumping over pews. It doesn't mean running around, foaming at the mouth, and slapping people all day long. It doesn't mean that. It means being led by the spirit. When we are led by the spirit, what happens? He will lead you and guide you into all truth. When we are led by the spirit, he will do to us like he did on the day of Pentecost. You will be witnesses because he empowers you to live a life that testifies to the fact that Christ is in you. God is not the author of confusion. Don't connect confusion to the Holy Spirit. And what is the other part? Truth. If God's word says it, you can trust it. If God's word doesn't say it, I don't care how popular the voice that says it, it cannot replace the worship that Jesus said is what God is seeking for, spirit and in truth. Put it this way. Somebody once said, too much spirit, you blow up. Too much truth, you dry up. But when you combine spirit and truth, you grow up. Modern worship has placed emphasis on experience rather than on the truth and the spirit. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he gives us a commission. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, look at the commission. He says this to his protege, Timothy. He's about to pass off the scene, and he's challenging this young man that's going to come in his footsteps. He says to him, preach the word. What is he saying to him? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. I Sometimes when I talk to Ryan, I said, now, Ryan, you just turned 30. I'm 60-something on the low end. <laughs> Cut it out. And I said, Ryan, I'm excited about your passion because you remind me of me when I was young. I was a bulldozer. I was a steamroller. I could flatten concrete in a, in a flash. I was a bullet. I was a machine gun when it came to truth. But you know the difference was? I didn't care what people thought. And I was a wrecking ball rather than a construction crew. I leave casualties in my path. 
But as I got older, I realized, wait a minute, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Let God's word preach the word, but don't let the word of God knock people over. Let it ignite their lives. Come on, somebody help me out. Don't let the word of God burn. Let your light so shine. But why is Paul saying what he does? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. I like the King James Version, but it says convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching or the word there, doctrine. Because we're living in a day and age where people don't want doctrine. That's why I'm always amazed. Somebody says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a member of a non-denominational church. I said, what does that mean? If you go to the bank and you give them a $20 bill and they said, what denomination do you want? You say, no denomination. You'll get that on Monday. I need change. What denomination? No denomination. You want a five? No. You want a 10? No. Because that's the denomination. That is something that says to you, we don't need doctrine. But doctrine is simply what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus. And modern worship places emphasis on experience and not on truth. So let's talk about God's word. Let's talk about the most powerful weapon on earth. It can outlast any onslaught and transform any life, God's word. It can humble the exalted and educate the simple, God's word. It is a light in the darkness and a pathway to the lost. That's what God's word is. It can encourage the weak and comfort the weary. If you're hungry, it will feed you. If you are thirsty, it will soothe you. I speak of nothing other than the Holy Bible, the book of truth. This book reveals the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its precepts are binding. Its history is true, and its decisions are immutable. Read the Bible to be wise. Believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. Can you say amen? It's, it contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. The Bible is the traveler's map and the Christian charter. It, it cannot lie, but it can detect one. It has no pulse, and yet it lives. In it, paradise is restored. Heaven open, and the gates of hell are shut closed. Christ is the grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God is its end. Well, how do you handle the Bible? Read it slowly, frequently and prayerfully. I'll say that again. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. Why? It is a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It will reward the greatest labor and condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Paul turned the world upside down with it. Elijah called down fire through it, and God created the world by it. What about the Bible? It cannot be stopped, prevented, denied, or destroyed. Somebody ought to say amen. It will outlive any novel and outlast any show. It is divine, dynamic, didactic, and delightful all at the same time. It is a conundrum to the proud and a solution to the humble. It can open and close your eyes at the same time. It can confuse the scoffer and enlighten the seeker. The book, the book of books, the book of life, the book of God, the Bible, the revelation of God to man. But it comes with a warning. Listen carefully. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Reading and confessing this book will terrify the devil, stupefy the rebellious, mystify the world, pacify the critics, ratify the covenant, edify the church, magnify the word, and glorify the Lord. And guess what? It is still the number one selling book of all time. Can you say amen? 
Praise God. It is still the flame that is eternal. It will never go out. But what is the caution? What is the caution? Here's a caution. Amos 8 and verse 11 to 12. There's a caution. Why should we keep the flame burning? There's a caution. Behold, the days are coming, the prophet says. This is ominous. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord. What will happen? But shall not find it. That is a Lord have mercy. So why is the devil trying to keep us from reading God's word? He wants us to have a famine in our lives. He wants us to starve to death. He wants there to be a widespread scarcity of food. He wants there to be a crop failure in our lives. He wants us to be unbalanced spiritually. He wants us to be religiously malnourished. And he wants to increase casualties among those that claim to be getting ready for the coming of the Lord. When Jesus said there's going to be famines in the last days, he was not just talking about the scarcity of physical bread. But he was saying that so many things in the world will eclipse the need for God's word. We pick up this book. My, my wife has been trying to get me to use my remnant Bible every week. She says, use your brand new Bible. I said, honey, do you know how long it took to get this sword sharpened and ready? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Do you know how long it took when I highlighted and underlined stuff? I could find it like that. She said, but use your remnant Bible. So to pacify my sweet wife, I have my remnant Bible right there. But when it comes time for war, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It's like that tool in the garden that you know how to use. It's like that John Deere that has 15 years on it, but you know exactly how to get it started. God's word is a book that will never, never let you down. But why does famine, why does a famine occur? Because in this world, people are looking for what God is not giving. They're waiting for what God is not sending, and they're praying for what God is not going to answer. The church needs to be careful. We don't need to get in the shopping cart of those that are pushing an agenda against God's word. And the world is selling what God has not manufactured. The Christian world is supporting what God has not endorsed. And the devil is behind it all. We've got to be a people that know what the word of God is all about. And we must hold on to the word of God until the word of God says to us, it's time to let it go. So friends, I'm going to tell you today, I love the word of God. How about you? And I'm going to trust the word of God. And I'm going to hold on to the word of God. I'm going to say, my brethren, my fellow brethren, let it be said of you, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let it be said of us that God's word is so near to us that our lives are being transformed so rapidly and so beautifully that there's nothing that we can do about it. Let it be said of you that when you wake up in the morning, God's word is there waiting for you. And as the clock alarms, you hear the voice of heaven saying, let's talk together. Let's speak together. Your word, Jesus, is a lamp to my feet. It's a light unto my path. When my wife and I travel, and we haven't done much of that lately, but there are three things I have with me, and I don't want to call my wife a thing, 
but I have my wife, I have my Lord, and I always have my Bible. My wife, my Lord, and my Bible. And I planned on spending eternity with my wife and my Lord. I'm not going to need the written word when I meet the living word. The written word is intended to get me to the living word. And so I'm going to end with these thoughts. We've traveled together, my Bible and I, through all kinds of weather, with smile or with sigh, in sorrow or sunshine, in tempest or calm. Thy friendship unchanging, my lamp and my psalm. We've traveled together, my Bible and I, when life has grown weary and death was nigh, but all through the darkness of mist or of wrong, I found you a solace, a prayer, and a song. So now who shall part us, my Bible and I? Shall isms or schisms or new light just try? Shall shadow for substance or stone for good bread supplant thy sound wisdom and give folly instead? Oh no, my dear Bible, exponent of light, though a sword of the Spirit will put error to flight, and still through life's journey, until my last sigh, we'll travel together, my Bible and I.